the Virtual Band Director Conference. This is a 24-7 resource for you, band directors all over the world. I'm your host, John Liner. Let's get this party started. Episode 13, Beginner Trombone Pedagogy with Jason Harvey, Part 1. Uh, but without further ado, here is Mr. Jason Harvey. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for being here. Uh, you know, it's an, it's an honor to be a part of something like this. It's, it's, uh, it's humbling also, you know, just because I, I have so many people to thank for any kind of, um, any kind of success that I have as a teacher, you know, in, in preparing young people, you know, for whatever kind of road that they go on. Um, and so, you know, people like Joe Dixon, I owe a lot to people like, uh, you know, Eddie Green and, and John Benzer and, and, uh, and other trombone professors that I've had, like Brian Kauk at U of H and Dennis Bubert, um, who's in the Fort Worth Symphony, who uh, taught me in North Texas. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I've had a lot of really, I've been lucky and fortunate to be around a lot of really good people and, and been a private teacher in a lot of really great programs too. So, I mean, I've kind of been immersed in a lot of a lot of this and you know i'm happy to share it so um i uh i'm gonna get started just by talking a little bit about you know first of all a lot of these concepts are applicable to anything i mean any any kind of instrument a lot of this is general so i'm gonna start pretty conceptual and then if i however much time we have at the end i'm gonna narrow it down to more specific like this is a trombone uh you know, this is just the, the regimen and the curriculum for a trombone player. But we're going to start with pretty general things. Um, so, so I'm going to start a little little slideshow that I have here, and uh, and then I'll be back on the full screen. And once we get finished with it, although I need to rewind it. Um, I was testing it out before. There we go. And then we'll start with this. So, all right. So, um, so before we get into any kind of trombone, goodness, if I can learn how to. There we go. Um, okay. So, uh, I, I want to think. Just talk about just the natural aspect of being a brass player. Um, you know, just how, how organic of an activity it should be and it can be. Um, you know, the, the thing about making, um, making brass playing special, right? The thing about understanding what makes a brass player unique um, is, is, first of all, understanding what acoustic instruments are. And, uh, you know, four components make up most acoustic instruments. You have something that vibrates. You have something that is a frame that the vibrating thing is molded to. You have anchors that, that kind of anchor everything down. And then some sort of sound initiator, like a bow, a mallet, a pick, or air, right? So, um, and uh, in the case of a string instrument, the vibrating element is the string. The frame is the body of the, of the violin or whatever. And the anchors are the places where the strings attach, you know, the pegs. And, and then you have the bow or, or plucking, and that is something that's kind of an extra element. It's not part of the instrument, but it is a big part of it because the instrument won't play itself, right? Um, or on a percussion instrument, you have the drum head as the vibrating element. You have the frame of the drum, the shell of the drum. You have the, the bolts, the, the tension bolts, and then you have the mallet or something. 
on a, a reed instrument, you have the reed that vibrates, the mouthpiece that's the frame, the ligature that is the anchor or the fastener, and then wind or air is the sound initiator. But on a brass instrument, and I love doing this, I love talking to beginners about this because I, and I talk about this with fifth graders um, so that they understand what makes them so unique and cool and why also something like an embouchure is so important, okay? Um, it's, it's because when you ask them and quiz them about what the thing is that vibrates, a lot of them will say the mouthpiece, but it's not, it's the lips. If you ask them what the frame is that we mold the lips to, they'll say usually the mouthpiece. And you say, no, it's actually your teeth. And when you say, what anchors the lips down? And they'll say, oh, it's the mouthpiece. And they'll say, no, actually it's your corner muscles and it's, it's, your, it's your lower lip muscles. Um, and, uh, and then what, you know, what initiates the sound? It's the air from the body. So the cool thing about that is that all of those elements are actually on your body, right? That's, it's a very organic thing uh, to be a brass player. And, and so the brass instrument is just a, it's a microphone and a speaker, right? Um, so that's a really interesting thing. And, and because it's a, it's a physical instrument, uh, probably the most physically involved instrument that's an acoustic instrument, um, there are lots of ways to get it wrong. And, and so it's important to understand what the instrument is and um, that it behaves a lot like a vocalist, you know? I mean, like the, just the, the way the body behaves is very similar to how a vocalist navigates pitch, you know, on their vocal cords. Um, and, you know, that we play like we sing. And, uh, and then, you know, a lot of times understanding the natural aspect of it is a great way to understand how to, how to solve problems. Um, whenever you have a physical issue on an instrument, on a brass instrument, on a brass player, a lot of times it's the body compensating for another part of the body that's not doing its job or not doing its job incorrectly. Okay, it's some sort of physical habit that's developed that's actually creating tension the wrong way or, or causing some sort of issue. And so the rest of the body has to kind of work around that and hack the situation. And if you understand how to keep things natural, how to keep things ergonomic, it avoids problems. Also, it helps you solve them in the future. So, so that's, that's the first aspect that kind of like, you know, informs a lot of my approach to the whole thing um, to begin with. So I always like to start with that, that idea. having trouble with my controls here. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about five main things today. And then the bonus is the specifics. So we're going to talk about five main things, main concepts that, uh, that I, I like to focus on when I'm, I'm building a trombonist. I'm talking about form. Okay. I'm talking about correct form and structure. Uh, we're talking about repetition, routine, and practice. We're talking about time and pulse. Uh, we're talking about reading and sight reading. And we're talking about ownership and culture. And, and notice that I'm not talking about intonation yet. I'm not talking about tone yet. I mean, as, a, as its own little, like, you know, subsection, that's all intertwined and that comes into play later on. Um, and, and those are incredibly important things eventually, especially when you're talking about slide positioning and you talk about just the singing nature of the instrument, how much, uh, how big of a deal tone is. Um, it, it, it helps to, it, it kind of takes care of itself if you set up these things the right way. Okay. Um, so when we talk about correct form and structure, you know, as in any exercise or physical activity, good form is essential. And, and, uh, John, you did share the PDF with everyone, right? Correct. It should be in the you chat. You shared the PDF? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a PDF in the chat. All of that's there. 
and there's it's a little bit more detailed in there, but this is kind of the bullet points of everything. Um, and so, yeah, so make sure you, you download that and keep it because it has all this information uh, and even more. Um, so, uh, so when we're talking about we're talking about correct form and structure, we're talking up about both static form and moving form. Okay, you know, like just body position, sitting in a chair, and also the way that we gracefully move when we play the instrument. Okay, um, and uh, so you know, a lot of times muscle groups being developed are weak at first, you know, just like marching band, right? I mean, we always, you have to build the right form to be able to have the right form. And, and so a lot of times what we're asking to work doesn't want to sustain its role for very long until it has been constantly disciplined and reinforced to solidify habits. And, and so, so we scaffold things, you know, and, and we, we layer things, we layer a uh, foundation, things on top of the foundation in order to, to build these brass players. Um, and every extreme thing we do, uh, volume, range, speed, the fun things, the things that you know, make it exciting to play the instrument are accomplished as a result of proper technique and not physical effort because brute physical force usually makes it worse and more difficult you know, a lot of times. Um, there's almost never a time where, where brute physical effort is going to you know, achieve a consistent result, and we know that. So uh, now, embouchure. There it is. Okay. It's the single most important gift you can give to your students and yourself because it makes your job easier in the long run. And it definitely makes their job a lot easier in the future because it's, it's everything. The embouchure is the instrument. Okay. And everything we mentioned is, is the embouchure, the, the vibrating element, the, you know, the, the, the frame and the anchors, they're all, that's what the embouchure is. It is the instrument. And so just like a, just like we can't build a bass drum, you know, uh, as an octagon, you know, with a corner sticking out, you know, we can't build an embouchure with corners that go the wrong way or cheeks that puff, right? So it has to be structured a very specific way in order for it to be functional. That's not to say that there aren't exceptions to this, right? I mean, you know, you always have exceptions. You have, you have the players who will play eight hours a day with a funky embouchure and end up doing some really amazing things. But in almost all of those cases, they hit some roadblocks later in their life and they have to go back and re recalibrate some things. So it's really important to try to get them set up from the beginning, you know? And, and what I've noticed in fifth grade is that um, I can't really talk about tone as much in fifth grade. I can't do that because they're too small. They're too small to form an oral cavity that allows them, I mean, because as soon as they do that, all of a sudden their air depressurizes, you know, and, and they can't hit anything. You know, they can't play very, they can't play very high. They can't, you know, they can't move around the instrument. And I've noticed that. So, so I focus on embouchure, embouchure, embouchure. I reinforce that constantly because when it's time to talk about, talk about tone and we can open things up, then they're set up and they're ready to go. So, so they may have a, a, you know, the, the fifth grade beginner sound for a while, for the first year and a half of their, of their time with me. And, and, and just so everyone knows, I teach at a fifth and sixth grade campus in Conroe ISD. I probably should have talked a little bit about you know, my background. Um, but we have a basically a two-year beginner program where we, we work with them from fifth through sixth, and then we hand them off to McCullough Junior High, um, where they go to seventh and eighth, and they go to the Woodlands High School. And um, the, the one caveat to that is that we also have to start all instruments at once. So, so I have trumpets and French horns and trombones, euphoniums and tubas all at once at the same time. Um, so that slows us down a little bit. You know, it's nice to have a two-year beginner program, but, you know, it comes with a little bit of balance there, too. Um, so anyway, just, uh, 
little side note about about how we do that and why you know I, I focus on embouchure. They all, all my kids have mirrors. We have little magnetic mirrors. All of our mirrors are the really heavy winger stands, and so we have these magnetic. They're like one dollar. H and H sells them. Um, they're one dollar magnetic mirrors. They're flimsy and they go stick. They just go and they're really flat. They go. They sit really flat on the on the stand, and every stand keeps one on at all times. Um, they're always attached and they can move them around. They're really magnetic. So they can even only have like a quarter of the mirror, um, attached to the stand and it's still on there. They can move it high or low wherever they want to. And it, and it works. And so they're always, I mean, their mirrors are always out. They're always focused on what their corners look like. You know, that's a big part of the whole thing. Um, so, so body position, all right. Um, I teach my students to, I learned this from Eddie Green, my first days in college at U of H. Uh, he had to stand up and walk around the room and then had to sit down because he wanted us to, to kind of notice how, uh, you know, that walking, what our posture was when we walked. If we, as long as we walked like, you know, I mean, normal upright human beings, uh, you know, healthy, healthy upright human beings, we walked with a straight spine and walked with a straight back. And he talked about how being active, you know, this is the most natural position that our body is in, the most functional position that our body can be in to be active. And so when we sit, we also sit in that position. So we sit like we stand, but with our knees bent. And we should be able to stand straight up from that position. So wherever my feet are, they're not in a position. I can't stand up without wobbling over. So my, so my feet are not tucked up under behind me. That's why they're not kicked out, you know, across. You know, they're, they're just in a in a bent knee position, my feet are flat on the ground, and I should be able to stand straight up because it's basically like standing, but, but with my knees bent, okay? Um, and uh, the shoulders stay sloping, the head stays floating on the neck, you know, important to kind of always go back to these things, just to, just for little reminders. Um, and, and that way we're not, you know, we're kind of aware of not creating any muscle energy under the chin or under the tongue, having the root of the tongue be part of the, the playing process really important because that gets in the way of every brass player. It gets in the way of low brass and high brass players. You know, it's a big problem um, that, I, that I come across anyway. And, uh, and then we also, we don't allow any part of the playing to interfere with naturally correct body positions. Um, and, and the instrument comes to us, right? So, so I make sure that everything comes to me, right? I'm never bringing my head forward. I'm never punching down. You know, my, that's why my trumpet students, I mean, we're always talking about elbows because man, they want to play like this. You know, so everything comes to us, okay? And and when I when I have the trombone assembled, um, it should be in a position where it's 10 degrees below parallel. So a lot of times, especially in sixth grade, I'll have to remind my students, all right, go to parallel. And you may have to tell them that they're not parallel, right? So you might have to explain to them that this is parallel. And then 10 degrees below should be a very natural, comfortable position. This should feel kind of uncomfortable, and this should feel really comfortable. 10 degrees below parallel. Okay. Um, and really, if I look at it, because of the angle of my instrument, the top of my bell is pretty much parallel. If I do it like this, the bottom of my bell is parallel. But if I do it like this, the top of my bell is parallel to the ground. And then there's a slight angle pointing down, sloping down. Okay. And that sets up my natural overbite. Most people have a natural overbite. Not everyone does, but most people do. And also it sets it just kind of right where, right where the natural angle of the teeth go. Um, so... So we'll get into holding the trombone, okay? Um, so when we talk about this aspect, okay, so my left hand, um, I use my 
I use the left hand L, right? The, the loser sign. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I, I put that into the, I put, first of all, all of the weight of the horn should be in the left hand. So this is, this hand's going to get a workout, right? This arm's going to get a workout. And I want to make sure that I slide my hand right into where the bar is going to be. I'm sorry. I don't have a beginner trombone on me. I don't, I, I didn't end up bringing one home, uh, during all this time, but, um, but there'll be a bar here, right? And a bar here and the contact points, the balance points for the instrument are my finger touching right here, my thumb on the bar, and then my fingers that wrap around, right? So this little square that the slide makes are where my other three fingers go. And boy, that's hard for them to get at first. You know, you're going to have them doing all kinds of weird, funny things. And, and so you want to make sure you teach them that where their thumb goes up on top, their finger goes across this bar and the middle three fingers, the last two fingers go inside the square as long as their slide is locked. Okay. And, um, and so when they're holding their trombone, right, the right hand is in a pencil grip, the way that they would write with the right hand. Okay. Uh, and they're going to touch their three finger pads together or fingerprints together, first three fingerprints. And that's going to go right on the bottom of the bar, right? Right at the bottom of the bar. That's, other people teach now there's some things that i'm going to talk about that are uh up for debate or controversial even in the trombone world we have a couple of things that people argue about they're not really big deals but one of them is how we hold the slide now i just i've just been taught this and it makes a lot of sense it's a very natural way of moving the slide um, but i hold with two fingers and a thumb um i don't do a casting motion because i feel like this hinge isn't as natural of a hinge as this hinge is, okay? I have a lot more control with this hinge, and I'm talking about moving my, my wrist like this as opposed to moving it like that. Like you just try the two, one feels, this feels really unnatural. But some people do that, they do like a casting motion. I don't teach that because to me, it doesn't feel as natural. So I do this kind of thing, and it's a very natural thing. I think about my arm just kind of falling down to my side. My arm just falls down to my side, and that's the, that's the, the slide action that I use. So from first to second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, it's just it's just a really natural motion down the slide. Okay, and the back of my hand is leading out, right? So when I'm in first position, my first three fingers are pointing back towards my left shoulder. My wrist is not broken. Okay, if the wrist is broken, they're holding weight in the right hand. They're holding up their horn like this. Okay. So if the wrist is broken, they're holding weight. That's a really good indication that they're not doing it correctly. So you want to make sure you don't see any broken wrist. Okay. And you see a nice, a nice uh, housetop position with the elbows and the trombone, you know, forms a 90 degree angle on a diagonal. So you should see an X position with the trombone, right? So an X position going like that. This is hard to do with the camera, right? So anyway, um, are there any, questions about any of that so far i'm happy to answer any questions as we go um i don't have a, a way to see hands you know raised up so john you can help me with that if anyone has a question Absolutely. you can use that little hand raise signal i guess if, if you have a question so just jump in if you have a question because i don't want to blow through stuff and, and then you forget to ask something um so um so that covers a lot of holding the trombone and the angles and, and how i i've learned and how i how i teach what we do um, that also allows then when we get into micro tuning, this is way past sixth grade. We get into micro tuning. This hinge is kind of like your fine tuner. So you have your course adjust, which is your elbow and you have the fine tuner, which is, it's going to help you find flat third and sharp third and, you know, 
three and a, you know, two and a half and three flat, flat third. Those are the, the, all the different other positions that we use to find our alternates that we have. Okay. So at the bottom, it says attention should be paid to any unnatural body positions, head craning towards trombone, head bent downward, shoulders up, elbows up, all those things that just look unnatural because they're compensating for something. Usually a lot of it is the weight of the instrument, but you have to remind them that a trombone, a beginner trombone weighs less than a beginning trumpet. It does. Okay. If you ever like, you ever pick one up, all right, a beginning trumpet weighs more because of the valve block and all that condensed metal. It weighs more than a trombone does. It looks, it's kind of funny. It's like counterintuitive, but it, it does. Okay. The trumpets can do it. Trombones can too. Um, all right. So on to the second, second concept. So repetition routine. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. But I feel like it's under it's it's under taught a lot of I know that I was never really taught this um, and, and I don't hear I don't hear people talking about this like the the, the the importance of repetition and what that means and what practice really is okay uh, and so I, I love getting to this part of the lecture um, so the way you put forth effort on a brass instrument on trombone um, is through just time spent practicing experience and through repetition, okay? It's not through physical effort. And so um, playing the trombone requires complex motor synchronization and physical repetition is essential to skill building. So it's important that they practice in groups of repetitions alongside trying to meet a time goal. If you, you know, find that you have practice records that, you know, you rely on a certain number of minutes for a grade. Um, some people use that. Some people think that's really old fashioned. It, it is a good way to keep them accountable. And it, it, in fifth and sixth grade, they're usually still pretty honest, you know, about stuff. And so they're not, they're not going to lie just yet about things. Um, not all of them do. Some of them do. Um, but then having a, having a, a, a repetition goal is a really big part of it. So, um, and, 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 and because of that scaffolding and that, that synchronization that we need, we rebuild the playing every day from the ground up. That's why I do the same exercises now starting in the same range as I did when I was a beginner. You know, I mean, I still do Remington exercises, which are some of the first things I learned. I still start on a middle F or a low B flat, just till the first notes I play. I mean, and, and it's because those are really natural notes. That's the reason why we start beginners on those notes is because, or for several reasons, really, I mean, those are very natural notes that you can play with almost any embouchure. So in the case that you have kids that don't quite, you know, no matter how much you try, how much effort you put into establishing good embouchures, if you have kids that don't really figure it out, they can still start on those notes. They can still play those notes. But we rebuild our playing every day from the ground up um, using all of the information up through yesterday. So it's kind of like rewriting history every day. And we start with a basic skill. We start with basic skills, basic foundations, and, and layer things on top of that to rebuild a player better today than we did yesterday. And, and it should be done in a systematic scaffolding process, and that's what practice is. And so routine, organization, and order are required, and students should practice for the same duration as an average class instruction or private uh, lesson, recreating the orders, the order of events from class. And that's, that's and then when kids always ask, you know, what do I practice? How do I practice? You know, um, you practice, you do what we do in class. Like class, what class is and what a private lesson is, is a model practice session. That's what we do. And that's how you should be structuring your classes. Your beginning classes should be model practice sessions. You're showing them how to practice. You're showing them what to practice, how to react to themselves. You know, and what I'm doing when I react to you is an imitation of how you should be reacting to yourself when you're at home. 
that's how you get better on your own. You don't just get better in class. You should be getting better more by yourself than, than in class. Um, and they should be recreating. You know, that's, that's the hardest thing for them to do. And they, they have to be aware. You know, awareness is such a big deal. That's, 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 I should put that as one of my big things is awareness, you know, because uh, band requires a kid to become more aware of themselves at an earlier age than any other activity. I mean, absolutely. I can't think of any other activity uh, that requires so much personal awareness of how you think, how you read, how you sit, how you breathe, how you, you know, I mean, and then all the mechanics of playing an instrument. Um, so much awareness that's required. And so, so the awareness of what we do in class has to be part of it, you know? And my kids have, not only do they have a practice uh, log or a practice record, they also have a little, they have like a calendar kind of thing. It's almost like a little planner that I put in their binder. And, and it's, it has a square for every day of the marking period. And I, I'll say, write that down, write that down. You're going to do this. And, if, and if whatever the order is of things on the board, I order our, our day. And I get them in the habit of writing that down every day, even if it's the same as yesterday, even if nothing's changed, if it's just a day where like we need to do exactly the same thing as yesterday, they write that down. So they get in the habit of writing down what they're going to do. And, and then they go through that, you know, so they don't have to have to think about it. And they, we also go through things in order of the binder. The binder is set. When I hand them a binder, it has everything in order. So they just have to go through it like a book and their practice session is laid out right there in front of them. Um, okay, uh, let's see. So encourage them. Well, once, once they understand what correct playing is, once you've identified what embouchures are, playing with a mirror, sitting correctly, holding your instrument in a certain way. Um, also in relationship to the stand, I should have written this down. In relationship to the stand, okay? I make sure, so here's my stand and you can't quite see every, every bit of it, but um, I make sure that the top of my stand is about eye level, okay? It's about eye level and for trombones, the, it needs to be lined up with the right side of the chair, all right? Or just a little bit further out depending on what your setup is, okay? So my room is pretty packed and I don't know how we're doing this. We're, I've even started to figure out how we're doing this in the fall if social distancing is still a big part of things, which I'm sure it will be. But I have to pack 35 kids sometimes because my classes are big, right? I have a 35 you know, uh, member brass beginner class with all mixed instruments and I have to fit it into a space that is probably, I mean, 40 feet by 25 feet, okay? So, I mean, there's not a lot of space, right? So we're packed into the tightest block that we can fit into that and have everyone have space. So I checkerboard my, my, my seats so that the trombones have space. And I rotate rows every other week or so so that a different group's always in front, in the front row. And that way I'm always seeing, seeing their faces and seeing them working with their embouchures and getting to see things that I don't see when they're in the back. Um, and I try to move around the room as much as I can, but again, we're so packed in that uh, it really, it's better for me just to stay in front of the class because I can see more of what's going on. Um, so I have them rotate and I have them staggered so that they have slide space. But the stand is here and now the top of the stand is eye level with me and my slide is above the lip of the stand. It's above where the pencil goes. So that's my visual reference for them. They have to keep their slide between the high and the low point of the stand with the top of the stand being eye level. And that keeps them in that position. It gives them something to shoot for. Same thing with trumpets, right? And I've bent the trumpet stands also, so they're not covering up the music with their bell, right? Just so you know. And it's kind of weird, but I have my trumpets kind of sitting just like my trombones. Um, 
Anyway, and that keeps their bells up too. Um, moving on. All right, so correct playing can happen at all times. They, they should be always aware of what correct playing is. And they should always be aware of what practice is. So we're getting into my concept of capital P practice. Right there at the end of number four, every action produced in a rehearsal can be practiced. Capital P practice. So, you know, similar to the idea and philosophy of there are truths with a lowercase t, which are beliefs, and there are truths with a capital T that are facts and science and empirical evidence, okay? Um, there is lowercase p practice, which is like whatever I do in a practice session. And then there's uppercase P practice where I am focused on something specific, right? So we're going to get into defining that a little bit more here. Make them better tomorrow. The kind of practice that's going to make them successful, that's going to prepare them for something in the future, is where they are aware of, of what they're doing. And they're choosing to do it in a specific way. And it could be something as simple as just taking a breath, something as simple as where they're placing their tongue, you know, but that's being aware and choosing something is practicing. Okay. Um, and so in addition to a time goal, I've already mentioned assisting on repetition goals, groups of five in a row, um, doing it the same, uh, try to get five in a row, then 10, 15, 20. Um, my first tests with beginners have to do with them repeating something four or five times. It can just be a long tone where they have to play the same, uh, the same duration, the same pitch, um, and the same kind of tone five times in a row. And that's one of their first tests. Uh, so I do things in groups of five just because it helps them keep tallies. And then um, correct playing is also more important than meeting a final tempo. So, you know, all students have their speed, uh, their own speed based on their capacity and, and whatever challenges they may have. You know, again, with in, in my school, because we have such large um, groups, I have kids with all kinds of different ca capabilities in, in my fifth grade classes. And, and I, I have to differentiate. I really do. I have to differentiate a lot. And I, I try not to differentiate based on speed. I mean, I try, to, I try not to grade based on speed because that's not really fair to kids that can't, can't process things as fast. So, so what I try to do by differentiating is I'll give extra music. Like a lot of times there'll be shorter cuts and longer cuts or um if you do three versus five you get more or that kind of thing uh or doing half of the scale versus the whole scale or you know taking out the articulations that kind of thing but i never really award more points for how fast a kid goes because what i'm interested in is them knowing what speed works for them and then owning that speed owning them play their playing and being able to dial it in on a metronome and go for it because that's confidence that's ownership, and we want to build that culture from the very beginning. And, and so that's, that's a big thing about make sure, making sure they're focused on correct playing, what's correct, uh, not how fast. And that's tough. I mean, there's so many kids that want to just go, go, go fast. And I have kids that I talked to for two years about it who still will play something too fast. I mean, I, you know, it's a maturity thing too, and you can only do so much. Um, so we're going to talk about the difference for a second between practice and practice, okay? Um, so a practice session involves problem solving, progress, and capital P practice, right? That's what I want them to understand. Three parts of the practice session. You are figuring out how to take a weakness and turn it into a strength. You're deconstructing a piece of music into measures or into specific notes or into lines or into phrases. You are learning how to deconstruct your playing into specific skills. 
okay? And just working on one skill and drilling one thing and figuring out what you don't need. Like I'm, I'm, um, I, when I play this passage and I'm, I can't get it right, I'm a trombone player and it has nothing to do with articulation. My, my tonguing is not the problem, but for some reason I can't just get my arm to move rhythmically. I keep combining two notes. You know, I'm trying to play F, you know, I keep, I keep doing that and, and kind of mashing notes together. So, so the tonguing is not the issue. So we're going to learn how to deconstruct our playing and isolate the thing that's not going well. Okay, um, so that's the deconstruction of playing. That's the problem-solving aspect of, of, of practice, of a practice session. Then there's progress, okay, making progress or progressing. And that's the reconstruction with noticeable improvement. That's the noticeable improvement part is what makes them feel like they're, that, that's, that's the, the part that, really that's the best part of practice, right? The, the improvement, the, notice, the noticeable, you know, difference of now I'm better at this, okay? And that's, that has to be there. If that's not there, you, they won't practice. They won't, if they don't know how to problem solve and make progress, they're not gonna practice. And then they're not gonna get to the last part, which is the, the hardest part. This is the thing that makes the biggest difference, okay? The capital P practice is when you're preparing the final product and it only occurs when some version of the final product is being made a habit. So that's, that's where repetition is. Practice equals repetition. Capital P practice is repetition. And boy, that is hard to teach and sixth graders that you have to do something right more than once. You have to do it right more than once. You have to get it right more times than you get it wrong. If you want it to be the first way it comes out of your bell tomorrow, right? If you want a chance of that, you have to get it right more times than you get it wrong. And, and that's, that's a big, that's a, I mean, that's all of it. If you teach them that and you get them figured out how to do uh, really three main things, embouchure, this, and then reading coming up, then they will be rock stars on their instrument. That's, 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 that's it. And I mean, there's some specifics to playing articulation, the big one too, um, that really help seal the deal. But, uh, but I mean, it's this kind of thing. And this is for all kids, right? Obviously. Um, Cause again, we're real, we're real general right now. All right. So let's move on time and pulse. Um, you know, I, again, this is another thing that I don't hear talked about as much talk about rhythms, talk about counting, but we don't, I don't, I don't hear a lot of people focus on how important pulse is. Um, because that's a different skill than rhythm. You know, rhythm is a skill, but rhythm is based on time. It's based on a pulse. So time before rhythm is a skill that has to be constant, constantly reinforced. Uh, because, I mean, rhythm is just the multiplication or division of time. So, so time is a human construct. Time is something that, that we invented in order for, you know, caveman A and caveman B to meet up and go hunt saber-toothed tigers, right? So when the sun was this point in the sky, we meet up and that, that's that. And we started dividing that, you know, those, those into smaller increments until we could, you know, meet up at the second, you know, at Starbucks and get a latte. So, so we have these, this, this, this thing that, you know, we've invented that has to be trained because while it's inherent and it's, it's, you know, it's inside us, um, it is a skill. So it has to be worked on. It has to be practiced. So this ability to create a constant pulse is so important. Right, it's so important and it's it's so underdeveloped, especially in trombone players. They have to be focused on moving their slide in time, and tonguing in time, foot taps in time. You know, everything moves in time, and so I have little exercises for that. I have them just I have them just start to like. I one of the first things I do is I have them all close their eyes and and just like feel find a way to find their pulse. And then just start tapping their foot with their pulse. 
Just practice synchronizing with that. Just tap your foot with your, your own pulse. Find your pulse, tap with your pulse. And just get to the point where you're aware of that. Okay, because that, that, that flies right out the window. As soon as you add anything else on to trombone playing, pulse just goes right out the window for some reason. Okay, so that has to be constantly reinforced. Um, it's overlooked, taken for granted by a lot of teachers. Um, and, and using the metronome, I mean, that's why metronomes are so important. And I like them to have a metronome. I mean, I love tonal energy and I want them to use that as much as, as possible. There's so many awesome use, uses for that app. Uh, but just having a regular old box metronome that they can keep in their case, that they can pull up on their stand and in their test, on their test, they can use their own metronome and they can turn it on, they can dial in their tempo and they can practice playing in time. That's a big part of the test every single time. Um, so we practice everything we do in class, synchronizing arm, lips, lips, and tongue precisely with the beat. But these things aren't just happening at the same time as the pulse. They are creating the pulse. That's what you have to get them to understand. My arm creates the pulse. My tongue creates the pulse. Okay, the metronome is there as a guide. But I'm creating rhythm. I'm creating time with these moving things on my body. It's the only way to make them rhythmically independent and synchronized. Okay. Um, so let's see. So metronome is a guide, but it can't be the only tool. Uh, one suggestion would be to use. There are several ways you can do random, random generating beats. You know, um, there used to be. There's that the guy that did. Um, his name is Jason Solomon. He uh, he has his that funny bass trombone video where he plays "Fly to the Bumblebee" and he just plays one note and sits there the whole time. You know, like everyone's seen that. Um, he's a really smart guy. Um, he, he and I know each other. We both did blast and I, we kind of like, we, we, um, dovetailed. Like I, I, I left blast and he came in and took my spot. And then I ended up seeing him at a thing later on and we ended up hanging out and talking and he, um, he's got his doctorate in something crazy from IU, like, uh, physiology and brass playing or something crazy. And, and so he, he's done these really cool videos on how, uh, chunking and chaining work and, and, and stuff. But uh, he put out this, um, it might still be on, on Apple Music. It was a playlist of, of like a five-minute five tracks going from like 20 beats a minute to 180 beats a minute. And um, it started off with a regular click. And then after about eight clicks, it started to randomly remove beats. And so that was one of the first randomly generated metronomes that were out there. And then another app came out called Time Guru, and that's a really good one where you can set up, uh, you know, it to start to remove beats after a certain point and it can be completely randomized. Um, but random, random generation is really good to really test if they're doing pulse. Um, if they're keeping that beat either with their foot or in their head internally, um, it's a really good way to test them. And it's a fun thing to do towards the end of the year and they'll like it too. They think it's really cool. It blows their mind at first, but when you get good at it, they're all about it. Um, and then uh, also, so on tonal energy, you can kind of rig it up also. If you put it up on like 13.4 and you can remove random things and just have it cycle through, it won't be the same thing each time. That's another way you can do it on tonal energy. Uh, what else? Let's see. I already talked about using the personal metronomes and the tempo at which we practice is the speed at which we can be successful. That's, that's really important. So um, want to make sure that they're being successful from the very first time. And you also want to teach them about tapping in. Like every almost every modern metronome now has a tap-in feature. And 
if you teach them how to tap in a tempo, they don't have to know that I'm going at 76. They don't know that their tempo is 84. They just have to know that I play it like this at this speed and I'm really good at it. So they can tap it in and they go, oh, okay, that's 76. And now I can write that down. Now I know I'll play this at 76. And I can then when I have my test, I can look at my 76 and I can dial up 76 on my metronome and play a perfect test. And so it's all about just teaching them how to set themselves up. Um, all right, so let's go on to reading, sight reading. Really important. When I first got started, I didn't focus on this as much uh, as a younger teacher. And even, even doing the job I have now, my first year, we didn't focus on, on covering as much music. I wanted them to just be these amazingly, fundamentally sound players that sounded awesome and had this great technique. And we got there. Like, they sounded great in sixth grade but they couldn't read anything. So I realized I had to balance that out somehow. And, um, and so I've been reading a big part of what I do now. Uh, they, I really think they should be absorbing as much music as possible. I think they can, but it, you have to be smart. You can't just throw a beginner book at them and, and have them do that. So I, I write something out called five note drill. It's just, it's just different ways of playing a pinta scale, the first five notes. So that's what we do. Our first semester of learning the first five notes of the B flat concert scale. And, and I do that with all my brass uh, players. And, and then I just give them different exercises. And I can even, you can even set up, if you don't know about Sight Reading Factory, that's a really great website. So Sight Reading Factory is something you can use and you can set up and tailor make it to do a certain range, a certain rhythm, and you can have them just randomly generate different exercises that they can all read um, that just give them the same five notes. You can have them go only stepwise, you can have it only jump by a third, you can have it jump by a fourth. Um, most of my kids only do seconds and thirds. And, um, but that way, you know, by the end of their first semester, okay, they can read any combination of those first five notes. And, and you can point to lots of things in music that where five note drill pops up where they might go, you know, five, four, three, two, one in all kinds of things in beginner, beginner uh, band literature. Um, so, so we do that and, and we get them used to that. And then I add on the next note. Then after, after January, we, we move up through the rest of the scale. And then by the end of the year, you know, they're able to sight read anything on an octave. And then we have other pieces that do beyond that. But, um, but they're just, they're good to go on those first eight notes of the B flat scale. Plus they can also play a chromatic scale from B flat to B flat one octave um, in, in the first year. Uh, but, but it's all about processing and absorbing as much reading as they can do. Um, and, and they need to be confident with that. They need to learn that it's not a big deal. You don't treat your trombone players any different than you treat anyone else, all right? You just make sure that they're doing it correctly, right? And you make sure they can read just as well. Um, you don't want them to be slow at sight reading, you know, because, because they don't have to be. And so if people are out there teaching their kids how to read, and I'll say this, you know, as, as, as big of a deal as tone is, okay, especially in Texas, you make a big deal about tone. When I'm sitting in a, you know, when I'm judging at a region band competition, and I hear the kid play, put a snot out of the music and he's prepared everything and he has kind of a pinched up tone. I'm not going to necessarily rank him lower than a kid who plays 15 beats slower and has beautiful sound and perfect technique. You know I mean? Because it took that kid, it, that, 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 that first kid that I mentioned, he worked just as hard as he harder to do that. So I have to recognize that, you know? And so kids that have no fear with music and no fear with getting through things um, will go further. They will be the players that are part of the organizations that we, you know, are blown away by. Okay. And hopefully that's your program. So, um, so then uh, if the pieces range and rhythms are in their capacity, as long as they, they know how to count, 
they know how to read, you know, uh, a piece of music. They know what the accidentals are. They know anything that's on the page. There should be a tempo that will allow them to be successful the very first time that they play it, if you set them up right. That might mean you have to walk them through the process of counting and clapping first, saying their note names, adding positions, doing all that stuff first and scaffolding all those things together before they play it. But by the time they play it their first time, they, you should have 90% success in your, in your trombone class, um, as long as there's a tempo. And you go with the tempo of you know, the, the slowest kid in your class or about the slowest kid in your class. And then, um, and then key work is, uh, key work, I, I say this all the time, key work is essential to unlocking the ability to play music. That's why we call them keys, right? Because they unlock, if I know the key of B flat, then I can play music and I've unlocked the ability to play in the key of B flat you know, a piece of music in the key. If I have learned the key of A, then I've unlocked the, any pieces of music in the world that are in the key of A. So you want to teach them that that's what that's all about. And, and trombone players will memorize patterns. They will memorize action patterns at first. And that is okay. That's actually okay. You don't want them to think about their notes as positions. You don't want them to do that. But if you, if you can tell that they're, they're doing something because they've memorized the action pattern, that's not a bad thing. It's not. Okay, because it's physical, like they, they have to learn those things because they're probably looking at their slide. If you're teaching them correct positions, you're teaching them to look down at their slide. And, you know, I mean, yes, we want them to be able to be aware visually of what they're doing on their slide and be aware of their music and be aware of the conductor and all that stuff, too. But realistically, they're going to be focused on what they're doing on their instrument. And if, and if you see them really kind of just focused in on, on a pattern that they're playing, that's not a bad thing. But you have to tell them that their work is not done until they attach that to reading. Okay. They have to be able to do that and read also. Otherwise they're only doing half the work. So, but it's okay for them to focus on their position patterns at first. They can't write in position of their music. I don't let them do that. Okay. But it's okay to focus on positions. Um, and then sight reading. So this starts with rhythms and then notes and then basic styles and articulations. So they should be able to sight read rhythms on one note. Within, I mean, I, you can give them a test on sight and sight reading factory within the first five weeks of, of their, I mean, picking up an instrument for the first time. You can give them sight reading um, based on half notes and quarter notes, maybe even a couple rests, maybe not, okay? But half notes and quarter notes, they could be sight reading uh, from the very beginning on one note, on low B flat, on D. These are really good notes to kind of start on, um, you know, teach them fourth position and do D. Uh, just because it kind of is in that middle range. And it's also a good note for them to develop a free blowing tone too. These are really good note for that. Um, so, so there should be three levels of grading. So what I'll do is I'll say, um, you know, if you do this much, you can earn a 90. If you do this much, you can earn a 95. If you do this much, you can earn a 100. And by the way, I never give lower than a 90 in fifth grade. I mean, they have to, they have to come in having obviously never done anything at all. They're always like completely absent-minded in class and they have a bad attitude for me to give them lower than a 90 in fifth grade. Part of that's a retention strategy too. But, um, but I, I, I don't want them to feel unsuccessful, okay? Uh, even a kid who tries is going to get a 90 and bam. Um, not everyone gets 100, but you know, the lowest they can get is a 90 if they try. Uh, but then I also have 105s that I give too for like extra stuff. You know, I mean, you've done, you, you've done, in a, in a test like that, uh, they're, they're exactly with the metronome. They're not stopping your air. I teach them now not to stop their We talk about blowing across an airstream 
and are playing like tonguing across the airstream, never, ever, ever letting the air stop. And they, we point out differences. I use the tonal energy uh, spectral thing that shows where the notes end, you know, do your notes connect or they have the gaps in between them. Um, so there's a, a lot of little references you can use to teach them that. So the notes are back to back. There's not, uh, the last note is full value. Um, the notes all stay the same and they don't fall off the partial. You know, the articulations all match. Those are all things that they could do to earn a one to five. You know, they can do all of those things by the time they're in their fifth or sixth week of advance. Some of them can. And that's how you differentiate for those really advanced kids um, who are probably ready to do more than that. That's, that's what you do. Uh, so then with rhythms, you can, you can do counting on ta, you can do counting on rhythm syllables, and you can do playing on concert. There's three different ways you can differentiate. For notes, you could do same. They could they could do a test where they just they're ready. If they're not ready to play yet, then just sing their note names. And before we take our instruments out of our case for the first time, they have to they have to get a 100 on a note naming test and a value adding test. So on the back of the note naming test, it'll say a quarter note plus a quarter note equals an answer is two. A half note plus a quarter note equals an answer is three. And they have there's like 15 of those questions. So they have to nail that and they have to nail a note naming test. If they can get 100 on that, then we open up the case and we start putting the instrument together. If they can't do that, then they have to keep taking that test over until, until they get a 100. Um, but they may have to be at the point in a test where all they want to do and feel comfortable doing, because it's also about public performance, they may feel only comfortable saying no names while positioning. That's fine. That's fine. But you can't give them completely full credit for that. And then, uh, and then playing notes without rhythm or playing as rhythm. Styles and articulations, eventually, if they're ready for that, you know, saying a ta or a da, if it's a legato tongue, um, or if it's a slur, uh, playing on F, uh, or playing on changing notes if it's applicable at that time. All right, so now we're getting into ownership and culture. This goes by so fast. I'm going fast because I'm not done yet, and we're almost out of time. Um, so with ownership and culture, you're going to notice on the PDF that I've, I've linked a bunch of different links on there, okay? And they're all active links to basically usually YouTube channels or YouTube uh, queries for that player. Um, so with ownership and culture, it's, it's, it's multifaceted, but it's all about them feeling confident, them owning their playing, you know? So encourage performance, have show and tell days. We call them star performers. So my kids, I keep a, a, a sticker pad at the front of my uh, room with gold stars. And if they do something awesome, they answer a question really well, they say something outside of the box that we haven't talked about yet, they get a gold star. Um, and, and they get a gold star on Fridays if they do a star performer, which is they found something on their own. And I've learned the hard way that they need to, they need to show it to me first. Some of them try to come in with you know, all kinds of stuff. And, um, and they, they come in and they, they show me ahead of time what they're gonna do. Uh, they, they play it for the class. It's, it's just like a show and tell. So there's less stress because it's something they found on their own. Um, and I encourage that. And, and usually I have pretty good participation. There's some weeks where I ask at the beginning of class on a Friday, who has a star performer? And I get like 20 kids with their hands up and that's all we end up doing. So it's a really fun day for them. Um, expose them to the culture of, of world-class brass playing, world-class trombone playing. Uh, get them to listening to the heroes and the role models on the trombone. And make it diverse. That's a real big thing right now. We need to, we need, we need to include everyone. We need to make sure that, that you know, this is something that is for everyone. Um, that that the, the players that they're seeing every day don't just look like one thing or don't just sound like one thing. Teach them what jazz sounds like. Teach them, you know, like what the trombones to Costa Rica sound like, you know. Um, it needs to be girls. It needs to be boys. It needs to be everything, right? And so um, 
So I, I put a whole list of, of, of all kinds of things. And this is a drop in the bucket on the PDF of the number of players who are out there doing things. But if you click on any of these and you go to their YouTube page or go to that query, you know, obviously you can go down a rabbit hole of all kinds of stuff. Um, so I put individuals, ensembles, videos not to miss, um, just some fun things. If you haven't seen that German brass peanut vendor video, it's like under a circus big top where they play like all like eight different sizes of trombone. Super fun. Um, Waking up with Phil Teal is a, a fun video where people are just like these bass trombones are just carving out these super low pedal notes as a warm up one day um, at, a, at a camp. Pretty fun. So, um, so that's all about culture, you know, just getting them into the culture of like getting them listening. Now, another thing that I do is my kids come in the, in the room every day. And this is something that was, that was mentioned to me by my, my teacher, uh, Mr. Dixon, when he, you know, back when he would be part of, you know, beginner programs and, and, and do that, he would, he would make sure they listen to something every day. And I do that. I, I, my kids listen to a brand new piece of music when they walk in the room, they, they, they have what's called listening mode. So they walk in the room silent. If they don't walk in the room silent, I send them out of the door. And our fine arts hallway has this big loop they have to go around because we try to keep things flowing like, like traffic. And so they have to go down to the end of the hallway, around the turnstile. I'm in the middle of the hallway. So they go down a long hallway at the end, turn around, go all the way to the other end, turn around and come back to my room. And they learn real quickly not to come in like, you know, like a monkey because that, that gets old real fast to them. Um, or I just have them sit outside the door. If they can't figure it out, I have them sit outside the door. And sometimes I forget to ask them to come back in. That happens. That has happened. They'll sit out there for 35 minutes and someone will go, hey, where's Jack? And I'll be like, oops, I'm going to tell Jack to come back in. But I'll say, hey, you don't want to be left outside. Don't come in talking to my room. And, and they play, uh, I play something brand new. And I usually have a theme. Like um, last week's theme was theme and variations. So Monday I did a, I did a trumpet piece. Um, I did the, the one by... Uh, Brandon Rittenauer, the one that uh, the Canadian brass guy, he did the Paganini variations on like flugelhorn and trumpet. So they listened to that. And I did that through um, our little online thing that we have, so, our little teaching space that we have uh, with our kids. And so then Tuesday was a horn thing, was a most of a concert. Uh, Wednesday was obviously Blue Bells of Scotland with Joe Alessi. Then uh, Thursday was, um, I think I used the Adam Fry Yellow Rose of Texas. And then Friday was uh, was a German tubist playing Carnival of Venice on what's called a Python tuba. If you haven't checked that out, check it out. It's pretty cool. It's a, a guy playing on something called a Python tuba. It, it's like a cross between a contra and a chimbasso. It's weird. It kind of fits on him. And it's I don't know. But he also does the um, the uh, the Youngblood brass band. Um, what's the real famous one? The sousaphone like string bass improv solo thing. I forget what it's called. Like the warrior comes out to play. He's also done that. That's pretty cool. So um, anyway, they, they do that every day and they have to write it down and they keep a notepad in their binder and they write down what they listen to. So that that's a playlist that they can go back and check things out. Um, and now that I'm doing it online, now I have them write a paragraph and that's been one of their assignments because I can't grade them on too many things. So because everything's online, now I have a way to, to put the, the YouTube video in something called Canvas. I don't know however, how many of you have that. We use something called Canvas. It's kind of like Google Classroom. And, um, and there's a thing called Studio in that where when we import a YouTube video, it removes all the ads. So you don't have any embarrassing ads that play before the video. It's pretty cool. And, uh, and so I keep all that in there. And every day I put a new one up and I write a little like prompt, write me a paragraph, answer these three questions. You know, so they're listening for certain things. 
and then I listen to that. And I, I will decide how much of that I'm going to keep when we go back into the school year. I don't know if I can keep up with that because that's a lot of things to listen to and read and, and grade every day. But anyway, there's a lot of that you can do. So culture is a big part of it. They have to know who the heroes are. They have to know what world-class playing is. If you're a basketball player and you don't watch LeBron James, you don't know what's possible out there, you know? And so that's part of it. So, um, so that takes us to the end of, of just my concepts. And on the, on the, uh, software so and then on um on the handout i get into more specific things like what an embouchure is what air, how i think about air how i teach air uh you know um that's a whole other hour of of, of lecturing that i could go in and talk about um so but it's all there for you in a basic format uh i'm happy to answer any questions you know you guys can find me on facebook uh and and just instant message me um, but I, I'd be happy to open it up to questions for a few minutes uh, for any of you who have questions. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a quick Q&A here, folks. Uh, first, a huge thank you to Mr. Harvey for that. that was, like, I'm still trying to recover. That was some awesome info there. And also, before we uh, get to the q and I also want to let you all know, we are. this is our next to last session for the Virtual Band Director Conference. So our very last session will be next Thursday at 630 and it is a star-studded lineup, again, of world-class educators that you don't want to miss. So, again, a huge thank you to Mr. Harvey. We'll do a Q&A. So if you have some questions, I'm going to open up that uh, chat so you can drop the questions in. And we're going to get this party started. Uh, I already have a question then. It says, if uh, your students have tonal energy, do you allow them to have their phone out or uh, phone out to use? Or do you require metronomes separately for everyone in class for tests? That's that's more of a of an issue that our school won't allow um, them to bring their phones down. I have told my French horn players that they can, and I've worked it out with their homeroom teachers and the people that you know come down with them that they're allowed to bring their phones with them because in our classroom, um, if they don't have something that's telling them what the, what they're playing, they don't have a fighting chance. Because with my French horns, even in fifth grade, I have them playing offset. You know, so I, I mean, I don't have them playing unison with everyone and um, and boy, that's tough for them if they don't have something that's telling them what what they're doing. Uh, there are transposing metronomes out there that are box metronomes that I discovered this year. So I've started using those also. Um, but if they don't have that, I'm fine with them bringing their phone down if they have some sort of a lead mic. Uh, in, in my school, we're not allowed otherwise to let them do it. But I would be all about it as long as they were doing it the right way, as long as they weren't trying to you know get away with something else. But yeah, I would be all about tonal energy. I love that app. I use it all the time. All right, here's another question. Uh, do you have an extensive list of the listenings that you were talking to? Uh, as far not any more than what's on that PDF. Um, you know, oh, you like the ones that I. Uh, you know what? I keep forgetting to write that down. I, I know what you're not. I mean, the listenings for the kids. Yeah. Um, I wish I were more organized with that. A lot of times. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, besides doing this, I, I mean, being a band director, I'm also a private lesson teacher, and I have about 25 students on top of my normal load. And so I and I'm also a daddy. And so, you know, like I'm, I stay pretty busy and, and I get to campus about the time it's time for me to start just like, you know, blowing and going. And a lot of times my listenings are just like, um, let me go with this. I find something quick and I. I make it work and we talk about it and I find a quality thing and I, I luckily have enough of a database in my head that I can find something. 
and I have a pretty good library on my phone of things that I can find really quickly and make a theme out of. Um, but no, I haven't, I haven't written all down. I need to, and I have copies of, of kids notebooks that they've given me that I need to just type it all out and I haven't done it. Maybe this summer I'll have a, I'll have a <laughs> way to do that. And if I do, I'll send it to you, John. And uh, if you have a way to keep in touch with everyone here, you know, or if you guys instant message me, then I have a way to, to blast that out if I ever make it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, here's another question. Here we go. Uh, how do you, and I know that this is a huge question, but I'm asking because it's been asked. How, how do you introduce articulation? Okay. Uh, articulation is we, I, I have them just say ta. I mean, and in that, that's all instruments right now, ta or, or toe if they're a tuba player. But um, I, uh, articulation is done after we were focused on air. So it's introduced on top of air. It is, um, it is like superimposed, to use an old timey word, uh, onto, onto an existing airstrip. So I have them focus and I draw, um, like if I, I could use the whiteboard, but it's going to be pretty crude. Probably wouldn't work very well. I would draw, um, I draw a big rectangle, you know, which, which is my airstream. And then I draw segments and I focus on that being my airstream. Um, and, uh, and so I have them blow in their hand. I have them blow a whole note. So I have them go, you know, just like you've seen in breathing gym. And then I have them, I teach them what tonguing is and where it touches. I talk about, um, they're going to use, um, uh, a certain, like a number of, a number of taste buds around. Uh, we talk about touching about four lines of taste buds all the way around or less. If we can get a T sound. Um, they touch right where the teeth meet the gums. All right. Right. Where you say T, I have them to say T, 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 T. And that's about the last time I have them stop air when they do it. Then from that point on, it's all about adding it on to an existing airstrip. So they're doing tests pretty quickly where they're going. So we talk about using whole note air or a long tone of air, one airstream, four articulations. Um, but it, it really is just as simple as them saying a T sound in their mouth and not stopping the airstream. All right. Okay. All right, we're going to take... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I do that. On, I'll say real quick. I do it on the air, do it on mouthpiece, and then on the instrument. So it goes in that order. I don't just jump to the instrument. So. All right, we're going to take two more questions. Uh, also, total side note, congratulations to those of you who made it to the – if this is your last day of school, congratulations. If you're still in there fighting, keep pushing. I got a friend that's teaching until the end of June. It's like, God be with you because I don't, I don't know if I could do it. All right, here we go. Uh, it says, I'm a woodwind player. How do I learn the positions? Okay. Um, I meant to, to link this. Uh, if you look up one of the first links under the um, – I mean, it, it, I, I wrote some things down there, and, I, and it's really just – a, ch a chart really works better, a visual chart. Uh, Nicola BC just came out with a really good one. Um, so under the uh, the – players, the individuals, the very first one, Nicole VC. If you'll Google her name plus like fingering chart or slide chart, she's come up with something and she calls it extend a bone. And, um, and it's a really good like visual reference for the positions. Uh, but how do we learn positions? I use visuals. So, so if you go down in the PDF to where it talks about what positions to teach first, 
I teach positions in this order first, then third, then fourth, then sixth. And we stay in those positions for a while, the first semester, really. I don't ever, we don't go to second, fifth, or seventh for the first three or four months because I want them just really good at those first positions. Again, we're talking about the notes of the B flat scale, the first five notes. So those are in those positions, right? Um, and I use those positions because they have a landmark. Those other three positions don't have a landmark. There's no landmark for second. There's no landmark for fifth. There's no landmark for seventh. It's just the end of your arm. So, but there is a landmark for first, third, fourth, and sixth. Um, I mean, meaning the sixth is the end of your extension, right? So a third position, the bar of the bell, I mean, the bar of the slide is just above. It's about a finger's width. You can see finger's width above the bell. That's third position. Fourth position on depending, now this depends on the, on the brand of the instrument, unfortunately. So with a, with a professional uh, instrument, with a beginning Yamaha trombone, which is my preference for beginning trombone, after beginning trombone, I don't touch Yamahas again, but after, before, um, when they're first learning, I like Yamahas because of the visual reference of the slide. Um, so on a professional instrument, on a Yamaha beginning trombone, the end of the slide is one inch past the bell. That's a visual reference, okay? And then, um, so with third, the bar is the reference. With fourth, the end of the slide is the reference, okay? And then with sixth position, it's really just them extending their elbow. I mean, I'm not going to teach them to reach. They might, I might, if they're really, really short, uh, their arm's really short, I might have them teach them that they have to move their shoulder just a little bit to get there. But I want them just to go to a straight arm. That might mean that their sixth position is really a fifth position. It's fine. There, there are other things that are going to make them sound bad in fifth grade, fifth grade too. I mean, I, that's not the only thing that's going to make them sound out of tune. That's not the only thing that's going to make them sound like beginners. So, so as they get, as they grow and as their arm gets longer, if you just teach them that sixth position is a straight arm, they're going to get to sixth position and that's going to work. Now, when I, when I teach the rest of the positions, I teach second as about um, two inches outside, two, two inches of inner slide showing. Okay, and they have to look down. If you don't teach them to look at their positions, they will not play in tune. We don't, we don't learn on trombone. We don't learn pitch orally, uh, orally, okay? We don't learn it orally. We don't learn it by, by ear training at first. We don't. Uh, their ear is too underdeveloped. Um, it's like a language. You know, it's like, it's like learning taste. It's a cultural thing. So, so you're going to train their brain to hear what's in tune based on them being consistent hitting a position on the slide. Okay, because this is scientific. There are, because there are 100 cents between half steps, there are literally 100 places on the slide between positions. So you can get where you're visually understanding pitch on a trombone, okay? So if they're not looking down, they're not gonna be close. And it only takes being off by two of what those 100 of a position to be noticeably out of tune with a neighbor later on. And they're not gonna miss by two, they're gonna miss by 40, you know what I mean? Um, and so, so you want to teach them to look down and learn geographical locations for their positions, right? And once they're, once you see them looking down and, and you can stop harping on it, but they need to have that habit of looking down and their muscle memory will eventually take, take over. And then their ear will start to hear, you know, once their positions, again, once sixth position is all the way out, their ear is going to start to register what those, those right positions sound like. And then that's how you develop their sense of pitch. Um, so that's, I teach it visually in that order. Okay. Fifth position at first is just halfway between a straight arm and the bell. Okay. So fifth and sixth are subjective at first. They're subjective to the performer. But if you teach them that fifth position is halfway between sixth position or whatever, whatever their sixth is and the bell, that's also going to lengthen 
if as long as they remember that that position has to change as they get as they get bigger. Okay, and seventh position is where their thumb stays behind in sixth position and the fingers extend. So the reach is the same. Seventh and sixth aren't there's seventh is not harder to hit than sixth. They might lose their slide. They might they might do that. You're gonna have every one of those kids at some point is gonna throw their slide off the end of the line. Um, it's gonna happen. They you do it one or two times and they're not gonna do it again. Hopefully you have a carpeted floor. Um, I do, luckily. So, uh, but if you don't, then, you know, I mean, you just teach them to be careful. And there's a certain amount of pressure you can put on the underside of the slide that's going to keep that slide in their hand. Okay. But again, there's no reason why they should be fast moving out to seventh position, except for when you have them do chromatic scale, you know, and they go one, seven, six. Um, but just remember, whenever they're going out from seventh or sixth, well, from seventh to sixth, the only thing that moves is this hinge here this hinge. If they move their elbow, they're going to be in fifth position. So they have to make sure they go first, seventh, and they just bring their fingers together for sixth position. And then they start to move up, up the slide. Um, so I kind of, I kind of wrote it out my, my descriptions there. Um, and I did also mention the thing about the Bach and King student trombones versus the Yamaha. So with the Bach and a King trombone, there's a lot more outer slide above the, the slide bar. So there's the slide bar here and, and, this amount of slide is like this much longer on a Bach and a King. So in that position, in that case, the end of the slide is even with the bell for fourth position. That's the one difference there. So when you use the end of the slide as a reference, those positions that you use the end of the slide change a little bit. So second position is more like an inch, an inch of inner slide that you're gonna see, an inch of silver slide, and the bar will be even with the bell. And that's on a Bach and a King trombone. Uh, and we only get those brands. I see Bach Kings and, and Yamahas. Um, so if you have different brands than that, I'd have to take a look. So that's a long answer, but that's, you know, that's it. So what else? Now that's awesome. All right, here we go, folks. We're jumping into the last question. Uh, okay. So don't forget, if you have a question, Mr. Harvey said you can uh, message him on, on the, the Facebook, the book face, and he will be happy to, to uh, talk shop with you. Uh, this is fabulous, uh, Jason. Thank you so much for doing this. Sure. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed it. I'm excited to go back and listen, learn some more. So, all right. Last question I got here. Uh, all right. How do you get the first buzz uh, uh, from your class? Okay. Um, it, this is a really organic thing. Okay. So, so when you teach them embouchure, right, um, their embouchure needs to be on a trombone, basically the same as their resting face on a beginner in a, in a beginner setting. Okay. You're not going to get real into like what the chin looks like and all of that yet. Okay. It's really just going to be them putting them just setting their, like doing their resting face. I call that a neutral, a neutral face, just this and touching the mouthpiece to it. Move something so I can get up closer to them. All right. And move their mouthpiece to that. Okay. And they're going to breathe in through their corners. And, and they're just going to naturally keep their lips together. And, and if you teach them that, if you teach them how to breathe first, how to take a big breath in and use an unrestricted airstream and then, and then set the mouthpiece here and don't let anything change too much, then even if they don't buzz right away, I'll tell them just make sure your lips touch closer together 
keep the air going. And a lot of times they're going to stop blowing at first. Like when they start to try to buzz, they're going to stop using their air. And you got to remember, keep, take, you know, send your air to me, send your air to me, send your air to me, move your air, move your air. And then, and then I also kind of buzz along with them. If they aren't getting a vibration, I just kind of, usually I'll go kind of buzz along with them. And that's just for whatever reason, enough to, for them to instinctively for it to kind of turn on. But I might have kids that go their first week without making a sound on their mouthpiece. And it's happened and it's weird. It does, I can't explain it, how it happens. It looks right. Everything seems to be set up and they still don't make a vibration to start. That's rare. I might get one every couple of years like that, but it does happen. Sometimes it just like they're going to struggle on the instrument, unfortunately, you know, no matter what. Um, but, uh, but that's what we do. And it, again, you want to look for at the beginning corners. So the corners are the most important part of this whole thing. So the embouchure sets like this and corners don't move. Corners stay put in their natural position. Now, if, if you're going to teach them to anchor down, they're going to anchor to their bottom canines. Okay. That's where they should be aiming them. Okay. Because the, your corners kind of, if you just take your corner, your, your finger and just kind of push in on your corner, you can touch bottom or top teeth right there. So you want to have them anchor down because if they anchor up, then they will because the smile muscles are, 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 are dominant. Your smile muscles are stronger, right? They're going to always anchor up if you don't tell them they have to anchor down. And, um, and so if you get that to happen, you get it right. You should notice at first that the buzz is really focused. That's why it's called a buzz because it's, it sounds like that, right? Um, if, if you're getting a lot of air in the sound, I don't like that. I don't want that in my sound because when we go into do, when we get into doing sirens on the instrument, which is how they learn range and how they learn flexibility and, and lip slurs on the instrument, if they're doing this kind of sound, a really open airy sound they're not using their aperture to change the pitch they're not using their embouchure they're using their neck muscles and their throat muscles and their glottis to change the pitch and that's a whole, whole different skill and technique that's not brass playing and so so i want my sound and this is one of those controversial things um that, that some people go way on different sides about um but i want a focused sound i don't want it to be tight but i want it to have tone I want it to sound almost like a trumpet buzz, okay? It's going to have a lot of tone, okay? Um, and, uh, and that's what allows them to use the right muscles to go up and down on the instrument, which is the most important skill that's going to hold them back. If they can't move up on a mouthpiece the right way, they won't be able to do lip slurs. They won't have high register. You know, uh, they won't be able to articulate correctly. Uh, it's going to cause a whole, whole lot of problems. So I, I, I really focus on the, the inside oral cavity when I'm buzzing. It's not an ah, it's not wide open. It's a neutral position. It's this, uh, it's just my, my relaxed jaws, natural oral cavity. So that's what helps also get a, get a sound right away. Because if you're teaching them go ah and then go, they're not going to, they're not going to be able to do much on the instrument. I'm on the mouthpiece. And then the mouthpiece isn't useful as a tool. Okay, and there are some people who don't teach mouthpiece at all. They say don't teach them to buzz on a mouthpiece. It's because they're teaching them this wide open, like oral cavity from the very beginning that's not very functional. Okay, and and this 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 is what informs this how to play. This is what teaches this how to play. So they have to know how to play this, and um, and they have to do that with more of a neutral setting and with corners that don't move up and down, um, and. Uh, and, and with what I call a core to the sound, a core to the buzz. So it has a lot of fat sound. All right. So that's, that's a little bit of that too. That's awesome, man. Guys, another huge thank you to Mr. Harvey. 
Uh, folks, if you want to catch this again, you missed the beginning, or you want to watch any of our previous sessions, all of these are on on the Facebook page and on YouTube. Uh, so you can go back and watch and get the knowledge that's been brought. So if you like what you heard, subscribe and check out our website, virtualbanddirectorconference.com. Thanks for joining us, and remember, there's no stealing in band when you give with an open 